Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in one of several ways. You can leave a comment on the blog. You can leave a comment or like the video on YouTube. You can uh, also make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions. And today, the woman with the answers is Dr. Natasha Vitamore. Dr. Vitamore is one of my most regular and most popular guests. And the reason for that is actually very simple. She has been around the forefront of transhumanism for a very long time, and quite often she's one of the people pushing it forward. And the reason why I invited her today is so that she can share with us um, a little bit more information about her upcoming monumental book uh, that she co-edited with Max Moore, titled The Transhumanist Reader. So, Dr. Moore, thank you very much for being on the show with me today. I am delighted, as always, to be on your program. It's one of my favorite, and I think that you have the insightful ability to really touch on the, the nuggets of uh, important ideas. So thank you for inviting me. The pleasure is entirely mine, and I have to say I'm very much looking forward to uh, your book. So let me start uh, our conversation today with uh, asking you, first of all, can you tell us the full title uh, of your book and when is it going to be available to be purchased by all of us who are looking forward to it? I don't, can you see it? <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the Transhumanist Reader. Yes, it's called The Transhumanist Reader, Classical and Contemporary Essays on the Science, Technology, and Philosophy of the Human Future. Uh, it's published by Wiley Blackwell, um, a well-known academic publisher, and um, it's uh, to be released in two weeks, I believe. Um, the date slightly changes. Um, publishing, as you know, is is a very rigorous um, industry, and sometimes you have to go with the flow a little bit, but we've been waiting for it to come out, so any week now, we're hoping. You can download it on for Kindle, certainly now, and on that has been available for the past, I think, um, Two weeks, so oh. here we go. We're off and running. Wow, I, I was not aware of that fact. You see, I, I have a Kindle, and I would have bought it already if I knew. But on the other <laughs> hand, to tell you the truth, books like that, such substantial books, I actually am kind of a little old-fashioned, so I actually like to have the, the hard copy of it. You know, me too. Uh, I love the feeling of this. Uh, yeah. It's solid. It's, it always feels good in the hand. And I think that even though those of us who are really excited about emerging technologies and what they have to offer in making our lives um, more immersive, we still like the feel of a book. So, but I guess the feel of a Kindle is um, pretty nice too. <laughs> well, I, I like the feel of the book. I even like their smell, for God's sake, but which is probably <laughs> lead and it's probably poisonous for me. But um, let me ask you this. It looks like it's a very substantial book. I mean, what is it, four, five, six hundred pages? Yes, exactly. I'll tell you. It is exactly, without the index, without counting the index, it goes to 453 pages. 
Mm-hmm. And then we did include an index. Wow. So, so okay, so for somebody who, like me, has been looking forward to get a transhumanist book like that for quite a few years now, and I admit I haven't had the pleasure of reading the book just yet, but I will do so as soon as it becomes available in paper. Tell us, why did you decide to put together the idea and start the process of creating such a humongous book on transhumanism of all the topics that you could have written on? I saw a gap, and that gap needed to be filled. To start with, I suppose that as a culture and as a society, my view is that we need to take a more deliberate approach to the issues that we face as a society and as a species. This book provides a collection of seminal essays that can be used as an excellent resource for those who want to learn more about the ideas of the future, uh, and specifically the sciences, technologies, and the um, philosophy of transhumanism, and the arguments as well, uh, some of the debates, some of the issues, and some of the um, conflictions that um, have we've, we've seen over the past couple of decades. So we didn't avoid this at all. We just jumped in and dealt with what we thought were the original ideas, um, espoused by the, the thinkers who presented them, and some of the more current issues uh, through the past 20 years. So mm-hmm. that's classical essays and contemporary essays. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds fantastic. So now you could have written a book yourself, be your own book, and in some ways that would have been much easier because, uh-huh. I mean, You don't have to deal with getting the rights or the permission and the agreement of the authors, the the publisher who owned the copyright of those previously published essays. I mean, in some ways, you did the harder thing because you went through all those other places to get the rights, to edit it, to put it all together, and maybe it took you double the time than writing the book yourself. So the question then is, how long did it take you to do that, and why did you decide to persist through that time? It took about two and a half to three years. Uh, First, it was a matter of doing the research, going over the past uh, 20 years, even longer, and looking at where the ideas came from that really formed the philosophy of transhumanism and the sciences and technologies as well, but also the artistic design base um, uh, inspirations. Um, So we first had to think about the scope of it. And then we had to consider who the thought leaders are, mm-hmm. were, and continue to be. Uh, so their works, and then digging through um, a lot of material um, from Extreme Magazine, from a lot of uh, early transhumanist writings, uh, writings that were not included in transhumanist writings, but by transhumanists, and also writings that may not necessarily be explicitly by transhumanists, but deal directly with some of the um, very focused concerns uh, within transhumanism and the human future. So that was the first um, bit of research. And then when we honed it down to the specific authors we wanted, there were so many, and we had to uh, even hone it down further to 41 authors, which we have in the book, and to make sure that their essays were, in fact, seminal, and that newer essays uh, that aren't part of the classical con- uh, collection, the contemporary essays, really do point on with the issues as they stand today, linking them to the historical seminal essays. So that took a considerable amount of work. Then um, finding a publisher, um, 
We almost went with MIT. They decided uh, not to go with it, so then we had to hunt again. We were so fortunate to get Wiley Blackwell. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's, it was a, a real coup. Um, but I think, and they agree that it, it's a good book and, and substantial, and I think they're very happy with it. In fact, I know they are. So that makes me very happy. Um, now, dealing with the putting it together, um, one thing I learned is that the edit, being an editor of a book and an author within the book is not an easy task. Uh, As I said, it's probably harder than writing it yourself. Yes, in fact, it is, because not only do you have the essays that may be too long, because we had a limit on um, words, um, number four, each essay couldn't be over, but then in some areas we had to rethink that because the essays were so substantial in a lengthy version that we had to um, be flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, but editing some of them down to crystallize the idea was, was very difficult and, but exciting at the same time. Um, getting rights, if the, if the papers had been published elsewhere in another um, book or journal, you have to get rights. An author oftentimes thinks that he or she owns the, uh, the copyright material yeah. because you know, it was written by them. But once it's published by another publisher, no, you relinquish your rights. So we had to deal with some uh, situations there that were time-consuming, sending letters back and forth even to remote areas in, in Russia or the Netherlands. Um, but we finally pulled that together, and um, I think it's I think it's a substantial body of work and because of the, the quality of, of writing and ideas that had already taken place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you said you had 41 authors uh, there. I kind of looked through the uh, contents online, and I see, if I'm right, there's like 42 essays grouped and divided into nine separate parts. But tell us a little bit more about the backgrounds. I mean, it's obviously a very diverse group of people, 41 people in the same book. That's, I mean, that's as diverse as it gets, pretty much. So who are those people and why did you choose them? Well, I, I, I don't think you want me to go through every single thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, just give us, I don't know, a few. Okay. Two or three um, maybe. I don't know. Like. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, some of the, um, the key thinkers, um, Marvin Minsky, Werner Vinge, um, uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, Andrew Sandberg, um, Rachel Armstrong, Laura Beloff, uh, Roy Ascot, uh, the, the, um, going back to Sasha Chislinko, uh, who is not around today, including ideas of FM 2030, who formerly known as FM Spondiari. Um, I think that once you take a look at the authors, you'll just go, wow, how did they all get in this book? I, I mean, it's, you know, Michael Rose, um, you know, I can, I can go through quickly. Um, we have from uh, just dealing with ethics, uh, Rice and Tensha and James Hughes, uh, Nick Bostrom, um, to thinking about the singularity, which is Vinge and, and Kurtzwell and, um, David Brin and, um, Max Moore, of course, who is a co-editor with me, dealing with uh, specific issues of human enhancement, Andy Clark and Andy Maya, I mean, well-known academics in their respective areas, uh, nanotechnology, Eric Drexler and Robert Friedis, Ralph Merkel, um, economics and understanding idea futures, Robin Hansen, um, uploading Randall Cohen and Andrew Sandberg, not to mention Hans Moravec, um, 
let's see, David Brin, who I already mentioned, Ronald Bailey, a uh, well-known um, uh, from Reason Magazine and... and um, yeah, basically, my lesson from the list that you're telling me is that <laughs> it's, it's two kinds of people. I mean, they're all amazing, but it's two kinds of people. People who I have already interviewed on Singularity One-on-One, -on -one, or people who I should be interviewing on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. So... Yeah. <laughs> So I think it's a it's a very good collection, and actually, uh, one of my one of the reasons I want to get the book is because I want to fill in the blanks and find out and I locate all those people that should I should be chasing to come back to come. <laughs> right, show, I right. think that that's the beauty of this. It it's, it does bring together the uh, the thinkers and the seminal ideas, which certainly have been built on and um, expanded on by so many other. Now, really, truly uh, great writers. Um, uh, one person I did mention is Martine Rothblatt, and and one of her essays on uh, you know human rights and gender is is just enormously timely today. Um, mm -hmm. But it, I, again, I don't want to spend the time talking about each one because I'd rather people just go look in the in the uh, table of contents and find out yeah, for themselves. Yeah, it sounds like they're all amazing. So uh, uh, now. Let me ask you this, though. Um, do you have a narrative that sort of unifies all those diverse and different essays and writers? And perhaps uh, one way that you could push that uh, unifying theme or narrative would be through the art or through the cover of the book, from what I can see here as the picture cover on Amazon, for example. Is there something like that? Well, I think, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the narrative, and it does have a narrative to be sure, <clears throat> the way we dealt with the narrative in um, linking the ideas together in sections was to develop the book um, in what we call parts, and there's nine parts to it. <clears throat> so we start out uh, with the roots and core themes in part one and go to um, part two is human enhancement from the somatic sphere, the body, <clears throat> and the, the physical aspects of the body, um, dealing with disembodiment and embodiment and some of those arguments in the postmodernist um, academic sphere. Uh, then part three is uh, more about the, the cognition, so we call it the cognitive sphere. Then we go into the part four is the core technologies. Uh, part five is engines of creation, um, life identity and uh, beyond death. Then we hone into, oh, yeah, part six, uh, part six covers um, the enhanced decision-making. Part seven uh, delves into uh, biopolitics and policy. Part eight is uh, future trajectories, um, singularity. And lastly, to sum it all up neatly, part nine deals with um, the world's most dangerous idea. Uh-huh. Now, speaking of the world's most dangerous idea, you know, uh, my undergraduate degree was actually in political science, and one of the most uh, hotly debate debated uh, essay in, in the field at the time was The End of History. And it probably took uh, a decade or so until the author actually finally publicly recognized that his thesis has been very flawed and absolutely ridiculous in my view because history never ends. Uh, and he wrote this very <laughs> triumphalist sort of an essay, you know, we won the Cold War, history is over, this is how it's going to be from now until the end of time, basically. 
if I'm to simplify his thesis, but that's what was it. And then the same author, which is, by the way, Francis Fukuyama, came up with the <laughs> following book uh, on the topic of transhumanism, where he called it the most dangerous idea. So, is transhumanism the, the most dangerous idea in your view? And do you address that topic in the book in one way or another? Yes, we do address that topic in the book in, in a couple of different ways because it is such a, a, a tasty morsel. You know, I mean, it's enormously flattering as well as enormously uh, dangerous to think that um, a worldview that deals with society and trying to problem solve the issues we face today and the, and the possible issues we might face tomorrow would certainly not be dangerous. I mean, that's a magnificent oxymoron. Uh, so the bizarreness of it there is, is creates that, that tasty um, um, bits of information to argue against that. But at the same time, you want to um, deal with it as something viable. So in short, Transhumanism is most certainly not the world's most dangerous idea. It may be the world's most provocative idea. And the difference between being uh, provocative and dangerous is, is a pretty enormous leap of faith because provo provoking helps to uncover ideas and promotes question asking and trying to resolve, um, looking more deeply into information and knowledge and the sources of information knowledge, where dangerous is just as dangerous, you know, stand back. It offers no opportunity to resolve um, the issues. So I think that looking at Francis, Dr. Francis Fukuyama, um, why he said that, I think that he has a substantial cause. When we start tampering with our biology and altering our genomics, uh, it will affect the phenotype. And so... We're looking at possibly a new way of being, a new way of thinking, and that certainly would pander to the notion of an evolutionary leap. However, it's going to happen anyway, most likely, so it seems that the transhumanist approach is the only approach from a particular theoretical and philosophical point of view that delves into these uh, issues and tries to find answers by asking the important questions. So in that regard, it's not dangerous. It's provocative and meaningful, indeed. Uh, no, but we have to listen to these people. We have to pay attention to what they're saying because, you know, it says, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I certainly don't consider him an enemy. I don't believe in that type of um, drama. But um, I do think that those who are opposed to transhumanism or the human future have important um, concepts for us to listen to. Mm -hmm. You know, I interviewed uh, Dr. George Church uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I asked him that same question, and I really love his answer. And he said, inactivity and complacency are the most dangerous ideas. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So maybe Dr. Francis Fukuyama could have said, transhumanism is provocative, but really the most dangerous idea in the world is stasis. Yeah, because everything that's static is pretty much, that's death. That's pretty yeah. much the end yeah. point. So, uh, yes, uh, growing is always dangerous. I mean, going into puberty, coming out of puberty, becoming adult, those are all dangerous transitions. But 
it might be the moment that humanity is coming out of coming of age now and and yes it's dangerous but the alternative is no safer in my view mm -hmm. um, I... now perhaps is that the reason or is there the trend that transhumanism hasn't really entered the realm of academia yet high school colleges enough. universities I mean, even when I was in university and I wrote my uh, master's degree th uh, thesis, I, I did have a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance, and I, I, I barely passed it. I mean, I, I passed it with the lowest passing grade, which was a B plus, <laughs> which was my lowest grade at almost ever at that time, and I barely passed it, as I said, right? So I found a lot of people perceive that both transhumanism and the singularity as fringe extremist unlikely, almost impossible, almost fairy tale-ish ideas. What, what do you think of that? Well, first off, transhumanism is part of academics today. And, and this change has been happening um, slowly but surely. But w my evidence here is that I get one to two to more, at least one, usually two, if not more, emails a week from students working on their uh, master's thesis or their doctorate, and even high school students asking about transhumanism or asking me personally about uh, my own work, Primo Posthuman, and um, my views on, you know, the future body design. Uh, so there, it's there. They want to know. And um, so it was very difficult to get transhumanism into academia because academics has been a pretty much steered by a postmodernist agenda for quite some time now. So, and the postmodernist agenda um, has uh, had some concerns about transhumanism, um, but that's a whole other issue. I think we covered in the book pretty well. So. Once we've moved out of that realm and said, look, we're here to stay, and even Catherine Hales, who's such a well-known um, uh, theorist in literary studies and author of the, um, you know, the book about post-human condition, uh, are we post-human? So she offered an invitation to us, um, unbeknownst to her, of course, uh, because once you start turning against something, it causes people to want to even fight more <laughs> for it or to unveil what the, what the conflict is. Uh, transhumanism has proved itself that it's here to stay. It is a solid philosophical worldview. It is not only that, it's, it's combined of multiple theories on science, technology, uh, philosophy, ethics, um, dealing with um, actually the engineering of the, the human, the core technologies, nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, cognitive science, neuroscience, and the whole realm of how this is affecting us. So, because transhumanists are pretty much experts in these areas, and these areas have been brought out into the mainstream because of technology advancing. Mm -hmm. um, we rode with it and steered it and were passengers at the same time. So um, it has entered academics. The only, now, here, we're, uh, you're absolutely correct. It has not been... Uh, accepted yet as a as a core course. It, it's there's no department on transhumanism. There's no field on transhumanism, and I'd like to see that changed. In fact, if anyone wants to work with me on it, I I would just be absolutely delighted because for the for the reasons we mentioned, um, mm -hmm. it is not a self-absorbed philosophical worldview. It's looking to resolving problems that humanity is facing today, 
It's still fighting uh, for its own right to exist, almost, or yeah, for its yeah. own proper place in, in the general discourse. Uh, and, and, and some people may say, why? Who cares about academics? Why, why do you even want to be there? Well, granted, that's a very good question. And transhumanism certainly doesn't need academics. However, academics are here. People need to study. We need research. We need to be able to articulate ideas, research them, write about them, produce projects on them. And where do we do that? Usually in academic institutions. Certainly there are other places like Google or, you know, um, Different laboratories. Um, and academics do have impact. Grants, but, academic, academics do have a big impact on things like policy, government policy. Yes, I mean, Francis do. Fukuyama is a case in point here. Uh, probably not not a very good example, not a positive mm -hmm. example, but certainly he had substantial influence on certain government policies. Um, and they're also the ones who are the intellectual. Uh, parents of, of the next generation, if you will. So mm -hmm. it, they play a very important role to permeate those ideas or at the very least discuss them. And I'm happy. Uh, I mean, I was doing my master's four or five years ago, so uh, I, I agree with you that perhaps for the last four or five years things have been changing much for the better. Uh, unfortunately, at the time I was there, I didn't benefit from it because it was still very much a fringe idea at mm -hmm. least in my uh, university. But let's say that it's coming out of age and it's becoming more and more popular in the academic realm. So what departments do you think your book will be, uh, you know, useful for um, as a study guide or as a study tool for the education of the next generation? Uh, definitely in philosophy. <laughs> Definitely in sciences, both the hard and soft sciences, social sciences to be sure, because uh, uh, it's about trends and, and how society adapts. Um, the hard sciences to be sure, because it's dealing with the, uh, the, the issues surrounding uh, the hard sciences and engineering. Um, engineering, yeah, uh, that department too, looking at technological, technological advancements. And the, um, the intersection between technology and human, um, biology and the intersection between technology and, um, human, um, nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, so hard science, soft science, philosophy, uh, technology, uh, literature. Um, I think that, uh, literary studies would benefit from this book enormously because it's, it, the narrative deals with the, the scope of, uh, literary findings, um, mm -hmm. uh, the arts and humanities, um, in the arts, certainly digital art, electronic art, um, because those artists are using the tools that we're talking about in the book, um, bio art, um, and biological art, because uh, some of the essays are dealing explicitly with the use of technology and, and biological organisms. Um, theory, art theory and art history, to be sure, because um, much of the interactive design with HCI stems from cybernetics, and we talk about cybernetics in the book and, and the history of the transhuman coming out of cybernetics from the cyborg perspective into the transhuman. Um, uh, gay and lesbian studies, um, because of uh, the issues dealing with identity and body and human rights and, and morphological freedom. Ethics uh, departments dealing with ethics and rhetoric, perhaps I'm not sure about rhetoric, but definitely edit ethics, uh, because we're we're honing in on the ideas and the arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Let's see. Uh, yeah, I think that basically... So it's, it's, it's transdisciplinary. Absolutely, so. yeah. The ideas have such huge implications for everything, uh, be it uh, philosophical, economic, futuristic, technological, you name it, artistic, social, uh, gender-related, you know. So I think pretty much uh, I personally believe very much that it would be beneficial for all fields to be aware of those ideas, to discuss them at the very least, to consider them, uh, and raise the questions or confront the questions that transhumanism poses. Now, speaking of those questions, one of the most common uh, pushback or criticism of transhumanism usually comes in the form that, you know, people who embrace transhumanism risk losing their human nature. Uh, losing their own humanity or leaving it behind in one way or another and embracing machineness or something like that. So what do you see? Let me ask you this. What do you see as the frontiers of human nature and how does the book address that very important topic? I mean, I personally, as a philosopher, have been struggled, struggling with the question of human nature, and my nature in particular for a long time, and I still don't have a good question. So I don't know how those people have question, have such a very clear answer to that question, but there it is. <laughs> I mean, after all, what is human nature? I mean, who decides what human nature is? I suppose that, you know, over time, over the eons, um, specialists in the area of determining what is human and not human and what is nature um, have come up with insights that, that, and, you know, norms that we measure by. So baseline norms of, of what is human nature and what fits outside the, the category, what's acceptable and not acceptable. It seems to me that overall human nature is who we are and, and what we choose. And human nature cannot be just a single concept. It cannot be something that is, um, absolute, finite, and a universal truth that because humans are diverse throughout the world based on their society and cultural trends, mm -hmm. uh, we can't hold one, one particular value for all. However, even within that, there are certain characteristics that are endemic to human, human nature, a, a need for love, companionship, um, a desire for family, whether it's your biological family or extended family, a need for home and hearth, um, warmth, love, um, generosity, and, and just feeling good or, or happy or fulfilled, passionate about life. Those are elements of human nature. And the converse, um, there's temperament, arguments, jealousies, um, animosity. Um, Violence. Violence, yeah, wars, um, greed, um, I'm right, you're wrong, that mentality, that is also part of human nature, but those are the parts of human nature that we would like to not express so much. Uh, I don't believe in a Pollyanna world by any stretch of the imagination. I think sometimes tensions are good and, and chaos is part of the universe with entropy, but we need more extropy. We need to resolve um, things because erosion is constantly happening and we're constantly fighting against it to find a more um, level 
terrain to exist within in our own psyche and our psychology and our values and, and the world around us and our environment. So human nature for me is how we, how we survive, how we stick together, how we make decisions and, and care for the people we love and try not to do harm to others. Um, even in the face of danger, mm-hmm. you know, we, it, the fact that we even tussle with it, you know, what's the right thing to do, um, is to me, a necessary element of human nature. Mm-hmm. So when we look at how this book deals with it, I think it deals expressly with it by um, tangibly um, identifying the, the nine parts of the book that uh, is a window into the ideas that ultimately deal with human nature because we are human. And even in the transhumanist scope, it deals with our humanity and a desire for more humanity to overcome the the issues of war and, and greed and, and struggle and strife, but to understand that those are, are um, entropic constants, um, but they have to be dealt with and overcome. So I think that this book, by and large, by its very nature, mm-hmm. um, is dealing with the elements um, Mm-hmm. For me, you know, I always, when I'm in conversation with people who are unfamiliar with the term, I always try to stress the human nature, the humanist nature. I, I always try to say transhumanism is humanism. It's just another step of the next step of humanism, the future of humanism, uh, because we're not leaving the best of us behind. In fact, we're carrying it forward and we're improving on it. Uh, and, and as far as human nature, I like Personally, Kevin Kelly's take on things, who says that in his book, What Technology Wants, he says that we are a process. We are not an an end point. We are a process, ongoing process. That's why I'm always confused even about my own human nature, let alone anybody else's human nature, because I am different on different times of the day. I am different on different days. And yes, there is some kind of a commonality and common thread. But you know what? I don't think I can really encapsulate that as a substance over time, which is, you know, unchangeable and which is definitely my nature or my human nature. So I, I personally, that's, that's how I've come to, to view it. But the, the next topic that is probably the second most discussed one after the nature argument is the, the one about the body. Uh, so, uh, is there a future for the human body? in transhumanism? Definitely. Um, by the way, Kevin Coley wrote uh, a beautiful endorsement for our book, so I'm glad that you brought him up because he's someone I, I have enormous respect for and admiration for. He's one of the creative, uniquely creative thinkers, original thinkers around, so I was very pleased that, that he endorsed the book. Usually when people think about the future of, of humans and transhumanism, it's, it's tied to, uh, an argument by the postmodernist agenda that the future human will be disembodied, that we won't have a body. Um, and that's linked strongly to Hans Morvik. Well, Hans Morvik is in our book and, and I can attest to the fact that that's not the transhumanist perspective. The, um, the posthumanist perspective is, is far more, um, concerned about personal identity and sustaining life. So if the issue here, the underlying issue is 
sustaining personal identity, your person, your consciousness, who you are, um, over time, and looking outside of biology, then what comes to mind is, well, what would we exist within if we're not biological? What is the transhuman? What is the posthuman? So the transhumanist perspective on this is saying that we will start um, untethering ourselves from the uh, the, the, the strict um, um, architecture of, uh, or blueprint, let's call it, of biology that has a, a limited lifespan, a de- predetermined lifespan. No human has lived beyond 121, 122 years, no, 122 years, uh, Jean Comet. Um, that 223 could be the maximum anyone has lived. So that's it. Uh, so if we want to extend life and prolong our, ourselves, our sense of self, our identity, our personhood. How would we do that if our biology is limited? And the answer there would have to deal with building new types of bodies that are more sustainable. Um, also re-engineering the, uh, the blueprint of our genetics. So those two uh, can work together. So if we prolong life by finding out what causes aging and reverse that or, or slow it down and look at uh, death is a disease rather than an endpoint. Then we can start looking at, okay, so for prolonging life, slowing down the aging process, what else is there? We don't need just one solution to the problem. That never works. We need multiple scenarios, backup plans. So the backup plan that I came up with was a future body design that would work immersively with the biological and a semi-biological body, but take it into the next steps. So the that's a whole body prosthetic. So the whole body prosthetic works with biology, but it also works with computational systems if indeed we do become uploads or a whole brain emulation. Um, and as Randall Cohen calls it, substrate independent minds. So the prima posthuman is the transhuman in transition to becoming maybe non-exclusively biological or, or non-tethered to biology. Um, but biology can always be an option. It's just not one size fits all. That we have to start thinking about staying alive and what type of vehicle can we stay, best stay alive in. It may end up being totally biological if we can intervene with biology through nanomedicine and nanorobots and artificial general intelligence and actually uh, reversing aging on the genomic scale. So, But we still need a backup body. And my strongest um, view of this is that even today we don't have a way to back up the brain. So we're so fragile. We're in these biological bodies, and we use computers, and we back up our computers, but we don't back up our brain. And that was the impetus behind my designing a Primo Posthuma, which is now called a platform diverse body. Um, so if we do become posthuman, um, the argument is that we would be disembodied. Um, and I would, I, I, I debate that argument because there is no way that even if we're a computational mind, a computational entity or agents of intelligence, we still need to form our, our reasoning, our logic, our creativity, our consciousness. We still need to form our understanding, our reasoning, our perceptions, our cognitive properties within some kind of a system. And let's say it's a computational system. We're a series of computational codes. They still need to form together as a system. So, um, in that sense, uh, it becomes disingenuous to, to proclaim that in the future we will be disembodied, we'll be just brain, uh, you know, 
um, heads in a vat or, you know, brains just floating around, you know, cells everywhere. Uh, they have to form together um, in some kind of vehicle. Now, we don't know what that vehicle will be, but it will be a body. And so I say that we'll always have some type of body, but the very notion of the body would have to be redefined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there would always be one kind of a hardware or another. Uh, now, this actually kind of connects to the previous question about human nature because the two most common arguments that I usually meet against uh, transhumanism and uh, uh, the proponents of, you know, you're losing your human nature usually embrace one of two things. The religious ones usually embrace our soul uh, as being our human nature. So you're going to lose your soul. Okay, you're going to live forever, but you're going to lose your soul or something like that. And then the non-religious ones say that, okay, but your human nature is your physical, biological body. And if you leave that behind, then again, you're losing that human nature. So uh, that sort of connects very much with the previous conversation that we had on, on human nature. Descartes always wiggles his way into the conversation, doesn't he? <laughs> Here we have the mind-body dilemma. Um, all we know, realistically, in a, in a pragmatic sense, is that we are here, we have this body, we have this thing inside our face, this brain, and the brain works with the central nervous system and all the messages, the codes that are going up and down the, uh, the spine, moment-to-moment uh, -moment basis of our perceptions, our sensorial apparatus in, in sensing the world around us and our cognitive properties in forming knowledge and information, um, tweaking into our memories and, and formulating new concepts as we form new sentences and all of our perceptions are moving around us and bringing it all together within the brain. So as far as I understand, and, and my, my particular view is that the mind is consciousness it is a combination of all of our perceptions, our emotions, our feelings. Um, also, a lot of our reason and logic is is combined in there, um, unless we deal only on the reptilian aspect of our brain, which is fight and flight, which mm -hmm. lacks you know reason and, and logic. Yeah, but most of us uh, have combined it from our frontal lobe, so we're not only emotional, but we're logical, and uh, we want to use our sense of reason from experiences trial and error, the whole process of information gathering. So if that's the case, then the brain could be put into any type of system, uh, whether it's biological like we have today or whether it's semi-biological in the transhuman agenda as in the early stage of, of transhuman to um, less than biological to becoming more um, mechanized or more technological or more chemical, whatever the, the vehicle will be. So um, if our sense of identity is carried along in this process, then we are the self, we are here. And if there is some other element in the universe that has a sense of soul or spirit, and it's chemical that we can't see, um, that could be true too. Who knows? I, I, I don't like it when, when people say it's absolutely not true. We don't have a soul. We don't have a spirit. But um, mysticism and magical dreams need to be uh, thought out um, as, as other types of narratives. We can combine them in mythic lore, but we can't totally depend on them. There's something that has been a narrative in historicals, very, his, um, humans' historical beginnings from the early Lascaux cave paintings. There was implemented... Um, projections of the future through the visual imagery um, outside oneself. 
but we do seek outside ourselves all the time. But does it have to be a soul? Can it just be us seeking outside ourselves mm -hmm. through our perceptual apparatus? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, I personally, I'm not really 100% an empiricist, but when it comes to matters such as the soul, for example, I am very much an empiricist. I am, here's my opinion is, there's no evidence on it. Give me the evidence, I'll change my mind instantly. That's, <laughs> that's basically my take on it. But there are some people who say there is evidence. You know, they, they truly believe that yeah, there is evidence. Yeah, I've heard I think some of those people, I am unconvinced. I haven't seen anything yet that has convinced me of, of that. I mean, do you have anything to propose? I mean, no, I think the only thing that I would have to propose is the, the enormous commitment of people to blind faith. I mean, you turn on the TV in the United States, I don't know how it is in other countries, but on Sunday, you'll see hundreds of thousands of people coming together to be told that, um, some entities, agents, uh, will, magically improve their life through um, a collective prayer. And that may be so. I don't know. No one knows. But it seems pretty strange when you dig more deeply into who these people are that are professing this and what they have to gain. And usually it's a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, so, you're much uh, nicer than me. I'm much less scrupulous and much more cynical about that whole religious thing. And I mean, the, the, the latest big-time news and big hoopla around the next Pope, right? So how, how do you feel as a woman about a 76-year-old celibate man telling you what you should or you shouldn't do with your own body? I say, the heck with that. Uh, I I'm, I'm, was a feminist back in, in the 1960s and 70s. I, I, I left the church because of men telling me what I could do and couldn't do. I was yeah. born uh, in a Christian family. Episcopalian background. I went to church every Sunday. Um, I like the, the theatrics of it. I really did. But I just, I think it was 17 years old or 16. I can't remember. And I just said, who is this man telling me what to think? So I, that, I went on my journey of looking for truth and knowledge. Um, and, uh, fortunately explored many different cultures, lived with different cultures throughout the world and, and, um, explored their particular belief system um, across the board in, in uh, spirituality. And I've, I've developed my own sensibility about it, but I, I think it's important not to discount other beliefs. I mean, just check it out, see what they're doing. So then you have more of a rigorous understanding. Um, but I, I think it's malarkey. I am, I, I am stumptified and stupefied. And I'm um, aghast half the time at, at any group of, of people who uh, have no experience in someone else's life telling them how, what to think and what to do. And uh, yeah. to me, it's just theater. You know, I just kinda, that, that's the word that I really like uh, that you use, theatrics, because, you know, my wife has a circus company. And in Canada, it was a big deal because one of the forefront runners for being, becoming a pope was a Canadian guy from Quebec. And um, we watched the news, and, and my wife made a comment somewhere through, you know, it's, it's a show. It's a big production. It's a big show. It's almost like a circus, you know, with the clothes and with the f all the fanfare and, and the honorary Swiss guard and all the – it's a big show. It, anyway, that's just oh, – Yeah, it is. And, and, and these, these people are, are you know – Revered, they're they're rock stars of their particular 
field, their domain of interest, and um, you know they have to get off on it. Yeah, and actually, and, and they're treated like princes or kings, and uh, absolutely. And maybe they do have uh, an ear. Maybe God is speaking in their ear. I should say. Um, but how do we know that is God? How do we know they're not schizophrenic? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds more like Satan was telling them to abuse all those young children and I know. Tens and that is the of, uh, so people. Uh, the, I, I know. It's uh, how could they? Uh, it, to me, again, it's, it's theater. It's it's an interesting narrative. Um, it's full of BS. Um, I'm sure some elements of it have value to certain people, and I don't want to discount that because. I believe in multiplicity and diversity, and I would be a hypocrite not to respect that, and I, so I do. Um, however, uh, the other side of me, the, um, the, the logical person who um, is more the critic and um, uh, um, okay, you know what? bothered by this doesn't like we it at diversed. all. We, 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 we digressed, and it was entirely my fault. I know, so, so I know. Let me, that's fun. Let me... Uh, go back on topic with my last question here, okay. which is, if you could sum up the theme of your book in a few sentences, what what would that be? Oh, okay, let's see. A general overview, I think, has to relate to the, the core of the worldview, and that is... It's a self-directed aim for well-being over the long term, a desire to delve into who we are, where we're going, and how we might get there, and uh, considering the role we play and, and the environment we live in, and uh, just trying to offer something meaningful to people. Mm -hmm. Dr. Natasha Vitamore, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure.